Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Sinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. Welcome, everyone. Hi. Most of you know me. I'm Jessica Sinsheimer, co-founder here. We have a lovely guest tonight. We are so excited. We were talking with Rita about how long we've known each other. And we decided it has actually been about a decade. Rita is a treasure, as you will soon see. I think you will notice very quickly that she's a very special person. She's got really special energy. She knows so much. She's so smart. And she is a great person for wise replies to all of your publishing questions. So we're so happy you're here, Rita. Thank you for being here. What a pleasure. Thank you. Everybody, I'm Julie Kingsley. So funny for the podcasters at home, my dog. I don't know what's happening to the writing energy here, but she's just staring us down. So I probably need to feed her. But we do say that every time she works, someone gets an agent. So I am co-founder of the Mirror Script Academy, and I've been a writing teacher forever. And it's such a pleasure to work with writers every day. Thank you for coming. Hi, everybody. I'm Valentina Johnson. I'm the creative director here. I'm also the head of accountability coaching, and I'm just excited. So a lot of you I know personally, some of you I don't, but I just love seeing your shining faces, and I can't wait to dig in today. (laughs) Oh, that's so cute. Okay, so we are so excited to introduce our friend Rita Rosenkrantz. Rita, tell us about you. I am an agent of longstanding. I have a boutique agency. I am a former editor, having started at major publishing houses, Random House, and Scribner's, and a division of Crown. So I do bring an editorial sense to the work I take on. But the majority of my career has been as a literary agent. That's my focus, mostly adult nonfiction, wide-ranging list. If you look at my website, www com. you'll see that it's not producible to any one category. And that's pretty much deliberate. I'll get to talk to you about that later, I'm sure. But I like this sort of open sesame omnivore list that has an appetite for everything. Yeah, I love that it's possible in this career to work on so many different things. Could you tell us how you got started in agenting and if you knew you wanted to work in publishing from the beginning? I graduated from college on the West Coast. My parents had relocated from Brooklyn in the interim. I grew up in Brooklyn to Los Angeles, which is where I ended up working in a non-publishing job. I did seek out publishing-related work. I think I had an interview at Psychology Today. That was the closest I could get but never really grafted on to LA. Not that there's anything wrong with the place, but it wasn't quite for me. And I found myself coming back to New York with the hope of getting into publishing because I did feel the creative urge to merge, if you will, with the bookmaking machinery in all its aspects. And it wasn't easy to find a job in publishing, which was a bit perhaps obnoxious because it was and is a low-paying industry, and you would think that they'd be courting people readily, but it was hard. It took me about six months to find a job, and I was very grateful I landed editorial assistant job at Random House. That editor, Jackie Farber, left about three months after I arrived, and luckily, I was moved to the editorial director's 
assistant spot. He was losing his assistant at the time. And it was really an extraordinary experience. It was hard work. It was a difficult arrangement with a man who was not always pleasant, but I describe it as a window seat on the world of publishing. Names that you would know, fellows and women who have since passed, defined that landscape. Gore Vidal, Truman Capote, the list goes on, goodness gracious. And they stood out as being exceptional talent, and they just walked through the halls. And that was my, if you will, entertainment. But it was also, of course, my education. Working for the editorial director, who was a scrupulous and editor, well known for his tight editing, exposed me to the detailed, refined approach to that work, almost by osmosis. And I appreciated it because I am generally detail-oriented. And I really loved the fact that when you work on a manuscript, no matter how good it is, it could be made great through a third-party hand who has a sympathy for it, a way of seeing refinements that make it better, that shape it, that give it contour. And I loved that. So I became assistant managing editor at Random House, and then I was managing editor at Scribner's and editorial director of the Division of Crown, and really enjoyed developing a list, all nonfiction, where I thought my contribution did make some difference. But there was, at that time, and this is 1990, a musical chair syndrome, which frankly exists to this day. There seem to be stages of consolidation and movement in all categories of publishing. I didn't like the pressure of forced change. In other words, the threat that I would lose my job for reasons not necessarily related to talent or energy or productivity just came with the territory. That wasn't a good way to use my energy. So when I was at Random House and I thought, man, again, this window seat on the world of publishing, I don't want to go anywhere. This is the place I want to retire. Who could top this? The reality changed my take as it can, as it will. And By the time, so many years later, when I moved on to Scribner's and Division of Crown, and then decided it was time to do my own thing, I was brave enough, determined enough, or thought I had nothing to lose, and I would just start doing it my way. And I thought by then, I was going to take full credit and full blame for my actions. But there'd be no filter getting in the way of my resume, if you will, and my accomplishments. And that really appealed to me. So there was a little bit of an imposter syndrome, I'll confess, even though I had been in the industry a long time, I was new to agenting. And that's a whole different drive and beast and conversation and relationship to authors. Now you're having to sell their work. It's not just a matter of Uh, a scattershot approach to sending out material. It's got to be thoughtful and it's got to be informed. And that meant that I had to know publishers perhaps in a deeper way than I knew before. I had to have editorial contacts beyond those I had crewed over time. So there was a learning curve despite my history in publishing. I did do freelance work at the time because of the thing about agenting is that you're not paid up front. You're not paid at all until you sell a project. It's all spec work. The beautiful thing, and I knew this too, is that if you have a book that does very well and does very well over time, it can be a kind of annuity, thanks to royalties. 
So you can't bank on that. And sometimes if you get a very big advance, that book has to earn back its advance through sales and subsidiary rights deals, et cetera, before it's going to earn royalties. So there's no guarantee that you're going to get paid beyond that advance, nor is there a guarantee that you're going to get paid even if the advance is small, if the book hasn't done well. The refrain here really is no guarantee. And that's why you have to be, I had to be motivated to do my very best, which is my tendency anyway, do my very best to try to make it work. And I really didn't have a plan B, except that I did think by then, if it doesn't work, my emotional thread, my emotional connection to the publishing industry was starting to thin a bit. And I would go sell hot dogs in Central Park. I might not eat them, but I would try to sell them. And so that was a quasi, maybe, plan B. So it took a long time. There's no instant gratification. I did do a decent deal up front, but there were a lot of pauses in between my productivity. And I had to make my peace with that. But mostly, and here again, I think this is the refrain, I had to believe in myself and also enjoy the success when it happened well enough to sustain me through those tougher times when not much was happening. And years later, this is what I'm doing. And I realized that there have always been challenges. Nothing has just fallen into my lap, been a breeze, happened instantly, reached the bestseller list automatically, although I have had New York Times bestsellers, et cetera. In fact, I have a book that just came out and I can go into that story later. It was number one on Amazon and self-help. And it's a book that almost Yay. didn't happen. So congratulations. Thank you. And that I think is the Las Vegas of what I do. I have a noirish photograph that a late friend took and it's a poker game. You see those hands in black and white. And I look up at that and I think that's what I do every day. It's a crapshoot and it's a casino and it's a little bit of luck, but obviously I enjoy what I do. And to this day, when a book is delivered, I get my contractual copies. I think hallelujah because there's so much that could get in the way of the actual production and delivery and selling of a book. And now some of you might know the supply chain problems very much have affected publishing so that second printings aren't necessarily going to happen in a timely way. And now you have a great selling book, but you have no inventory, et cetera, et cetera. So part of my job is actually being awake and woke to this, to be mindful that stuff is going to happen, to try to anticipate, to try to make sure that things are covered in advance so that we don't have the worst case scenario. Sometimes it's in my control, sometimes it isn't. But that's in part the job of, I would say, a good agent to not just sit back and relax and get royalties. Do any of us ever relax? I would like to know that. I feel like most agents never relax, probably have never relaxed in their whole life. I appreciate and the observation. I think you're probably right. <laughs> and I think it's so interesting that this very nervous group of people has chosen to work with so much responsibility and so little control. And I think that's probably why so many people 
who are agents do have imposter syndrome. I think that's such an interesting thing that you mentioned because I know you as this incredibly competent person who would probably be six months old and never feel like an imposter. And yet you did. I think there's just something about the industry that makes us feel that way. There are marquee agents. There are those who are well-known to even outsiders. I suppose that if one were to compare oneself to those very high-level agents, it's easy to feel smaller in some way, but there's room for all of us. And that is a very good thing. Today, I wouldn't use the word imposter anymore. I think it really is a matter of creating a list of substance that you can point to, and then people understand you have a measurement of success and that you're here, you've arrived. But I think we have to fight for that every day because unless we fill the pipeline with projects that we want to sell, it feels like there's a gap that we always need to be productive. Again, some of it has to do with how long things take. Mm-hmm. That if you don't have that pipeline full, you'll really be sliding backward. It's amazing. Rita, I'd like to ask you, I want to roll back to you talked about the card game. I've never heard anyone talk about publishing like that. So when you're looking at nonfiction book proposals, when do you see a good hand? What do authors have to do for you to say, wow, this is a flush. <laughs> this is a real flush. This is a home run for me. What do you look for from that, from your side of the desk? I always hope there's a good chance. It's not always the, and I thank you for that question because it helps me get into an area that's interesting to me. I sometimes have a heart connection to a work and I think this won't be easy, but I need to represent it. That's a particular category of project. The one I cited earlier that reached number one on Amazon is called Your Pregnancy Loss. And the author, Dr. Kate White, knows it from both ends. She's a doctor based in Boston, and she suffered two miscarriages, also is the mother of two. So she knows the whole dynamic of it. And I realized that the mis- because years ago, ancient history, really, I tried to sell a memoir tied to the subject and did not succeed. I was a little gun shy about the topic, but I've been reading more and more about women who were going public with their story. And I thought that maybe the shame associated with the topic was starting to fall away and that the timing would be good, especially if it were connected to a woman who had such empathy, built-in empathy because of her experience and her knowledge and her station in life. It wasn't easy to sell. And this was a backdoor way of selling it because I have several groups of agents I hang with and we meet regularly and invite guests when we can. And there was an audio publisher in attendance for one of the meetings. And when I was having trouble selling this to book publishers, I thought, why don't I just try audio first? And this isn't quite how it happened, but the short version of the story is the editor was very interested in the project. She works exclusively with Mayo Clinic Press, which wasn't on my radar, but thanks to the audio editor's contribution, I was able to make that connection. And in fact, it's been a very solid publication every which way. So again, the back door, the front door, you just have to be wise to managing the moves. But there are other projects, though, where I get a kind of tingle. It's not even metaphoric. There is a kind of tingle where you think, this is so fabulous. The author knows exactly what that subject is about. 
and it will further the conversation on the topic publicly. People will really learn something from this. It's not more of the same. And that's very interesting to me because I think that's what books are supposed to do, further our knowledge, push us forward. Now, I'm aware that some categories, as I said, miscarriage has been historically a difficult topic, are harder to sell, maybe because there's a glut at the moment. There was a flash sale for crystal books not too long ago. So you know how it works. They put out a welcome mat for a topic and then all the agents send in stuff and then they buy it and then there's no room for anything else until it swings back however many years later. So I have to pay attention to that as well. When will it be an impossible timing? And I should probably withdraw at that point. But because my list is so, if you will, open-minded, I think projects that are so across the board, whether it's business, sports, music, math, popular science, and on. And so in a somewhat dilettante fashion, I know a little bit about a lot and I follow the marketplace across the board. I read the reviews in Publishers Weekly and in Kirkus to see what's being celebrated. And I try to refine my knowledge. And it takes some time. This is not a casual investment. I do it regularly. But I think it does refine my way of seeing. But I think some of this is about knowing one's taste. Who do I want to hang with? Also is another factor. I will say that the best authors are those who are polite, respectful, appreciative, like any relationship, and who value my time because it's very crunched and do the job that I expect of them. The problem I sometimes run into is that because I do editorial behind the scenes work on their project, they can get a little sloppy and expect me to do two and three and four rounds. It's highly time-consuming. And I would say ultimately unfair to me, especially if you're a published author across the board, one should be respectful of an agent's time, but mostly make sure there are no typos there. That's not for me to catch. I'll notice them. I'll point to them, but my time shouldn't be taken up with that. Maybe the way to sum this up is I say that I look for familiar topics presented freshly, lesser known topics presented commercially. And for me, that's the good grab of it because it means that There will be a distinct marketing handle on the projects that I take on that help me pitch it easily, that it's not ambiguous. There's a reason why this book deserves to live. And if the author can articulate that well enough in the query letter, that starts the conversation. So there's a lot of responsibility on the part of the author who has to get that part together because if they're looking for a visionary agent to make sense of that query, that's a very bad first step. It really will set you up for not a good, generally speaking, there might be exceptions, uh, very bad experience that usually is defined by way too many rejection letters. But I also respect an author who will come to me and say, I know you're the agent for this book. My book is like this because, and yet different in this way. So there's room for it. And they've done some research to make it clear they've got a connection to me and they're not doing a scattershot submission. That's very meaningful too. Absolutely. And I love what you said about don't pitch your project when you don't know what it is and don't try to get the agent to sort it out. Because that to me sounds getting a box of all your receipts and throwing them at your accountant and being like, deal with this. 
<laughs> so, no question, um, Jessica. In, in fact, that there are authors who will say, I can't quite tell you, or they'll use phrases that are really so heart-dropping, they can't define what the book is. And gosh, why are they even bothering? Because if they can't, how can the world appreciate it? Uh, Laura has a question. She said, I would like to know what Rita considers to be the essential elements of a platform for a first-time memoirist. Oh, okay. I appreciate that question because it comes up every day. And I would say that platform helps for a memoir because discoverability is important. So regardless of the genre, I will be inclined to Google the author and see what comes up. And if nothing comes up, that's pretty conspicuous. And it means that I'll have to do a lot of the heavy lifting and that it's probably premature with rare exception for that author to come to me. Because I think that if a publisher falls asleep at the wheel, assuming I'm lucky enough to sell it, I'm going to rely on that author to do a lot of that heavy lifting. If they're inexperienced in the world of promotion, they haven't been discovered yet. There are no line items on Google. That will be conspicuous today. And I don't get into the like massive social media numbers because I think it's become clear that doesn't necessarily sell books. Still, it is conspicuous if you are invisible online. So much of it might depend on the handle of the memoir. If this is a memoir that is tied to a condition, let's say, breast cancer, what have you, I can tell you that those books are very hard to sell, at least for me, that it's very good if you've been engaged in a marketplace with eyeballs, people who are waiting for you to publish this work. They've read your writing, perhaps in short form, they believe in you, and they're just waiting for the book. And you can make that clear in a way that's believable. You can prove it based on, let's say, your attendance on webinars, et cetera. So that level of engagement is key to help swing my interest. I do represent memoir, and I love when I find something that sings, and I have one coming out. I just looked at the photo insert. It's called The Chimpanzee Whisperer, with a foreword by Dr. Jane Goodall. And I think it's a unique story that covers so many important bases that I fell in love with it. And again, not an easy sell, but I found a good publisher who really respects the integrity of the work. So, so can I stop? Because you have a lovely book with a forward by Jane Goodall. And oh. it's fascinating. And they, it's still hard to sell. No, <laughs> because I'm leading into you and I want to snatch the book up right from the shelf. Just like hearing about it. Just, just like that tiny pitch. The author is not based in the US. If I had to break down the reasons why, it is a memoir about love and loss and conservation and compassion and chimps. And I had a wonderful Facebook call with Stanny, the hero, if you will, of this book. And his last sound to me was a pant hoot. What the sound he makes to chimps that endear him to them and them to him. He can talk their language. And it's, again, it's a story that's not easily cloned. That interests me. But often that means there's no real precedent to prove to a publisher that the market's in place, et cetera. That's why, again, back to the casino, you know, you think you've got everything in place, but there are these variables that no matter how astute you are, 
you're blindsided by certain prejudices, whatever they are. And I think in part, my job is to, again, anticipate that and figure out how to package the proposal so that we answer those questions automatically and assure the publisher that the project has legs, no matter what they're worried about. But it doesn't always work. I've come to a point where I'm a little bit sad when that happens. It means more work for me. My search continues. But I do know the difference, as it was true for the chimpanzee whisperer, when I find a publisher who's there with open arms, is arriving home. You're with family. No translation needed. It's great. That's what I'm in search of. In some cases where I have maybe a little less of a hard connection, I want a publisher for this work. Thank you very much. I don't get all sentimental. You know, in this case, and this is a project that went on for maybe 10 years, putting it together. There was another agent involved, and I've been involved maybe for two years. But there were early moments when it felt uncertain. I scratched my head like a chimp might. I don't know if you saw the chat as you were talking, but everyone was like, yes, I would read this. I'm looking forward. And so at least the people here are giving you a ton of energy for this project. Oh, good. Thanks for sharing. Oh, thank you. I'm not looking at the chat. Maybe I should just talk. (laughs) No, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. We'll do it for you. But I think that's a really great indicator because we have such smart people here. So if they're all on board, this is great. And we're getting a lot of compliments for you also. People love how you speak. They love your thoughtfulness. They love the words you use. Stephanie happens to have a question that is a burning question for me too. So the question I have is, what's the best thing that has changed in agenting in the past few years? And what's the most challenging thing that's changed from your perspective? I'll start with the challenging. I, and I'll speak for myself only, but I'll say that the constant shifts and now the consolidation can be a real problem because most of us like choice. We like a real big community of choice. And I'm not clear that we'll have a whole lot of choice at the end of the day. And I'll have to go further afield for some projects with maybe more hybrid, controversial publishers. And I don't feel safe there necessarily. So I'm not happy about that. The good thing for me at this point of my seasoned career And again, I'm very invested in my work and hope to continue for a very long time. But I'm clearer about my intention and my needs and my work ethic. And I think here again, those authors who respect that, I feel very at one with them. I think it's just important. We work so hard. And there are authors, I've heard about this from agent friends, who really take advantage of what passes for an intimate relationship because it's creative. And very often that could be mistaken for anything goes. But an author shouldn't call an agent at midnight unless invited to do that sort of thing. Just basic respect. I say I'm not a cardiologist. I'm a literary agent. So let's keep it straight here. And I think it took me a long time, maybe going along with that imposter syndrome, whatever. I've really outgrown that. But to be able to say, you know, I'm not going to do that now. I'm offline. It's a three-day holiday. This can wait till next week, and I will absolutely take care of it. And please be okay with that. No hard feelings. But I'm working all the time. I'm turning things around quickly. So there should be no ill will about things just languishing. But time is such a commodity. I don't want to get too obsessed with that. I try to be Zen in some ways. 
not successfully mostly, but I'm working all the time. And again, when there's busy work that feels like it's excessive and that it's of the author's making, that feels like a bit of a drag. I don't know if my agent friends would necessarily answer this in the same way. Yes. yes? Everything you said. Yes. Yeah. And we're all figuring it out. And the beautiful thing, which I didn't say, but I've said elsewhere, is that it's like a locker room, both in terms of authors and agents. We come in all shapes and sizes, personalities, dispositions, wardrobe, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And isn't that a fabulous thing? Because there is a chemical thing. Again, feeling at home, feeling at one, feeling like, okay, I can get along, I can trust. I feel like I'm in good hands, what have you. And that doesn't mean it has to be a seasoned agent. It could be a newbie agent who really gets it, hit the floor running. But that's the beauty, that there are all these options, at least in theory, and that if you keep your search going, you will find a connection. But for those authors who are getting rejected, I have to hope that you have some kindly agents weighing in and saying, I don't really understand what this is about. And I can tell you that for, you know, from your query letter, I really don't understand what it is you're selling me. And you're calling this a novel, but you're also calling it a memoir. What is the story here? Occasionally, I feel generous and I'm responding in a way that tries to be helpful. That's the time to pay attention. What's wrong with the query letter? Remember, this is the first introduction to an author. And you should also know many agents never respond at all. They will say on their website, I'll only say yes to those things I want to see. You're left wondering what the story is. And I can tell you here again about the casino. There was an author many years ago to whom I said, I have one publisher for you, are you game? And again, I I get away with saying that. It's the truth. I have one publisher for you, are you game? And that if you have other options, other agents with more ambitious view, go with God. And if you want to test the waters, fine. I realize I'm not presenting an ambitious plan, but come back to me, no hard feelings if you strike out. So after I sold this book, which originally was self-published as British American British Dictionary, and it was the time of the well-known series, The Office, it was ultimately published as Bum Bags and Fanny Packs. It's still in print. And I asked the author, what was your search to me like? And he said, I sent out 60 queries, 30 people responded, 30 did not. Of the 30 that did, 26 sent rejections, four said they wanted to see the book, again, already self-published. One said, I have one publisher for you. Are you game? Okay. So this is talk about Lotto. He just needed one agent and one publisher. He was a very lucky man. And again, the book is still in print. So I urge you to keep your search active, smart, by trying to get that query letter that it really articulates what the book is, doesn't digress too much, maybe in two paragraphs. The first one being clear what the category is and the word count, especially because when I see 200,000 words, I get a little skittish, no matter what the category. And that you, in the second paragraph, include a bio that one hopes correlates with the work. So I, I understand, especially in nonfiction, Why is this author writing this work? 
right away I get the combination of the two, that it's not far afield. And I know that I could pitch it in an authentic way. So that's my recommendation. But uh, yeah, the good and the bad and the ugly. I don't think we talked about the ugly, but I'm sure I could <laughs> go there if I wanted Thank to. Thank you. While we're talking about all of the agents and the community and how we speak with each other and these conversations that keep us all going, would you please tell everyone about the cottage? Oh, my goodness. And this is sort of like underground secret here, but all right. I'll do it for you, Jessica. For many years, I actually decades on 77th Street and Amsterdam, there was a Chinese restaurant called The Cottage. I think it might be a chain, but we were beholden to this one. For a long time, no matter how much you ate, the bill wouldn't be more than $12 a person. So I don't know how we managed that. But and then ultimately, it went up to about 25. But that's when we were really gorging ourselves. And also inflation took hold. They also gave you boxed wine. So if you had a tolerance for that, you could get a little buzz without paying extra. But the friend, Meredith Bernstein, they knew her so well there. They knew her by her first name that before we sat down, they'd have a glass of ice and those dry noodles that go into the wonton soup and some duck sauce on the side. So you felt like you were an insider at this boxed wine Chinese restaurant place where you'd pay anywhere from $12 to $25 over time. But it was a place, obviously, easy for me to go to because it was close and easy to invite agent friends to. And uh, over time, everyone got to know the cottage. But sure enough, during COVID, their lease was not renewed. But they are opening up soon, we're told, as the new cottage a few blocks from where they were. So that tradition will take hold yet again. So thank you, Jessica. I mean, it was delicious scallion pancakes. Oh. I mean, it was a, a wonderful place. And it was so nice to have a place where we could just hang out with agents. But I loved that they saw Meredith coming several blocks away and had the ice ready. They knew yeah. exactly what she wanted. And hopefully all of you will meet Meredith at some point. But you will see why they were like, okay, you want this. All right, we've got it. <laughs> um, yeah. And they saw her. Cold sesame noodles was pretty much a given. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, fun times. Very collegial. And if you drink boxed wine cold enough, it's not that bad. I think we share that opinion. It's always bad. I guess if you have enough of it. So, Siva, do you have a question for Rita? Hi, thanks for joining us this evening. Thanks for sharing your time. So with marketing budgets make or breaking book launch success, what leverage, if any, do debut authors have on negotiating their marketing budgets? I would not go there. I think it's very uncertain. And in fact, when you have a the initial conversation with the editor who wants to buy it, you might get some ballpark for what they plan to do. Most of it will be generic. And a lot of that conversation will be about what the author plans to do. So here we go. My behind the scenes conversation with the author will be, what do you bring to this? Again, if the publisher falls asleep at the wheel, I need to know I can rely on you. But really, that marketing plan won't be final until you get farther along and the buzz starts building and they recognize that maybe that 5,000 first printing really ought to be 10. So they can't necessarily anticipate that truly early on, even though they have to do a profit and loss statement that's based on a hypothetical first printing. But it is too early for that to be a real number. So some planning and some savings to do it yourself or be more entrepreneurial in those first months of a book launch or that first year 
to have money for travel, any of those things is probably smart. Not much travel happened during COVID. We don't know what kind of long tail there would be. But here again, maybe coming back to that earlier point about social media, if you've got that in place, that's your platform you will tap. And you've already established a readership that is ready to roll. That's why it's become such a given and so useful from an author's point of view. Frankly, it helps reassure you that there's a marketplace for this work, that it's not abstract. It's a viral connection and support and evidence, right? So that's why this has turned into this monster. Thank you. That's been really helpful. That's something for someone like me that likes to plan to have in the back of my head. It also tests your connection to your work. If you really believe in it, I think it tells us you're made of that tougher stuff and you're not just like winging it and throwing it out and hoping it connects. That's a rare scenario today. It's so interesting. And just so everyone out there knows that we are actually planning a platform class coming up in the near future. And we're actively looking to help all of you just find the platform that works for you that maybe that you can really sing. And And we promise you don't have to do TikTok dances. We have talked about that. (laughs) No one wants to see me do TikTok. But you know what? That is something that we feel like, and I love what you said, Rita, with grit, right? Like grit, determination, and hard work. And every time you believe something so clearly, the energy that you put behind that. And as a communications teacher, I say, what can you do in five minutes a day? What can you do in 10 minutes a day? And that can make the difference. It really can. Apparently, wine has a place too, judging from this chat. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we all have opinions. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's awful. It's so funny. People are raising a glass to the new cottage. Raising a glass to the cottage. And I hope hope we will get to meet all of you in person there one day. That would be amazing. I, I feel like one year from today, in the cottage, I'm in. (laughs) All right. All right. Your lips to the cottage's ears. (laughs) That's right. Jen, did you want to ask her question? Hey, we met you in Boston. You did. We were able to sneak that in. It was awesome. So I, I can't find the exact question, but I was basically asking about hiring a private publicist. If you're a debut author, does it make sense if you have the means to hire an independent publicist to help promote your book and maybe raise it to a level that the publisher might not want to invest in it in the beginning, but might help you in your career? It's not an easy yes for me to say, because they are expensive. They're three to $5,000 a month, exceeding what the average advance might be for a first-time writer, although I'm obviously speaking in generalities. I think the smart thing to do in the early stages of marketing talk is to find out with the agent what you can depend on. Then you have to read between the lines too that the publisher will do and what's missing and how you can boost that campaign. And if you can do it on your own, I have many examples on my list where the authors have been able to manage the social media and the connecting of the dots on their own rather successfully in a way that didn't require added assist from the outside obviously saving the author a lot of money. In one case, a recent book just came out on September 28th, My Beautiful Black Hair. The author had colleagues from school. She went to Brown and they were helping her with PR rather successfully. So connecting some of the dots that the publisher wasn't able to connect. It does take a village kind of thing 
But the question is, how much do you want to spend? Again, even if you have discretionary dollars for it, how could they be used well? Maybe you can start to ramp up your speaking engagements, do things that have many kinds of returns for you, building an audience, discussing your work, et cetera, and then being able to tap that when it's time for the book to come out. Of course, having connections like that and laying the groundwork at that early stage will also figure in your proposal and make you a more attractive author. Again, all publishers, big and small, look at that marketing section today. And many of those editorial meetings early on when they're interested in the work will review some of that marketing stuff in your proposal because it will influence the offer. I think you should be creative and for advanced planning in terms of who you want to be as a personality, as an author, as an expert. What are the reasonable things to do to garner that market, to connect with your community? It's easier said than done, but I say if you treat it like an adventure and not a job, it's a more friendly journey. I love that. Treat it like an adventure, not a job. I think that's a good mantra for everybody Mm -hmm. on this weird planet we all reside on. Also, if any of you are curious about learning more about doing your own publicity, we have some friends who can help you learn how to do that. So just reach out to us, as always, academymanuscriptwishlist.com. If you have any questions, we have people we like and trust we can refer you to. Just step one can be when you see someone else with a book going out, you retweet that book, you read that book, and you give reviews. You do all of the things. And when you do all the things, I think there is an energetic connection. We're talking a lot about that tonight, but my friend Joe Sousa, who has been a lot of our write-ins, he promotes everyone. And when his book came out, like you saw it, you saw people talking about it because that's how we can support each other. And Rita said, this isn't a cutthroat business. I want you to do well. And I want you to do well. And I want you to do well. And I know that you guys are going to support each other. And it's so simple, but it's something that you can do for our community. Yes, absolutely. All of a sudden, I'm looking at the time and we don't want to keep you up all night, Rita. You've had a long day. We appreciate you so much. You are an absolute superhero, which we already knew and now everybody knows. Could you tell us a story? I am so curious about this because I know that publishing had enormous budgets for parties back in the day. Can you tell us about a really fun publishing party you went to? I think that this will be a sort of mixed bag story, but book span not book scan, but book span was a combined book club that was getting troubled when people weren't buying that way. It was probably when Amazon was starting to rear its head. And for some hard to understand reason, they threw a party. It might've been like a swan song sayonara party, but it wasn't billed that way. And it was over the top menu and in a really stylish venue. And probably six months later, you could tell they were dying on the vine. So I don't know who got to event plan that party, but they had a lot of fun and I had a lot of fun. (laughs) And book span is no more. I think I might have a mug from that party as a reminder. Okay, so there uh, were free mugs. Tell us about the food. Tell us about the drinks. Tell us about the venue. I want to know all about all Well, I remember just all of those things that we know to be big budget, whether it's seafood or what have you, and uh, very stylish and probably very loud and very done up. You were expected to dress better than most of us do on a daily. And I think there was probably a little bit of chatter about the direction 
they were going in because, again, there were rumors that that business was getting really hard. Every so often, there still is a party. Most Well, during COVID, it got more complicated, obviously, but usually it's because the author has a really good friend with a nice apartment and is willing to get the carpet soiled for a good cause. You know what I'm saying? That still happens every so often. But no, these are mostly virtual toast times. And I take what I can get because one should celebrate however one can. And good news is good news, no matter what time we live in. But there's not much bubbly in circulation. The in-person, I don't think we're doing that very much, which is a relief to all of our introvert hearts. But Yes, I'm with you on that. (laughs) Knowing we have three minutes left, knowing that it's been a long day, Rita, and that you've been working with writers all day long, we're so thankful. Can you just leave us with your number one tip for writers? It's not a tip so much as an observation. I think that if you love what you do, as they say, it's not work, but if you're motivated to share a point of view, a revelation, a take on the world, a work of fiction that can transform us. How wonderful that you have the idea, one hopes the talent, and also the the presence of mind to show up. I think it goes without saying, everyone who showed up has some kind of intention. I think that's a really good start. And also in this instant gratification world, although that really doesn't apply to me, is that we really do have to know how to plod first step and second step and third step and to be patient with that and to be invested in our work so that we're ultimately comfortable with that and not too frustrated that things aren't happening overnight. And to take pride in the small progress we might make in a daily way, they do add up. And I think looking back at my career, every day led to another day, led to another day, led to some failures, some successes, and some well-being when I have been able to make a contribution. And I hope that applies to the authors who really do believe in what they do and aren't happy with the struggle necessarily, but see themselves as successes and are unafraid to get there. We appreciate you so much, Rita. Thank you so much for doing that. It's a true pleasure. I like ending this day this way. (laughs) Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. It not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.